Hi everyone, I'm Charlie Boyd and welcome to the Jesus on Display podcast. Before we begin today's content, I wanted just to say thanks for supporting us here at Fellowship Greenville with your gifts and generosity. Because of your giving, we get to share resources like this podcast with you to help reach you wherever you are in your life with Jesus. If you'd like to support the ministry of Fellowship Greenville, you can head to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash give to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Here's the leadership transition, verse 13 and 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now here's the first mention of the eighth son by name, David. And by the way, more is said about David than anyone else in the Bible. He comes up over 1,100 times in Scripture. He's the subject of 66 chapters in the Bible. He's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. He authored 73 of the Psalms. Tim Keller says, more is written about David than any other figure of all ancient literature. All that to say, as we'll see, Yahweh's choice of David is a turning point in biblical history. And uh, it's, a, it's a turning point because, chief reason, because David will be the king that points us to King Jesus. When God sends a spirit upon David, David is equipped, God has equipped David for conflict. Conflicts that will make his battles with bears and lions seem dull. Because after the brief respite we're about to read about in verses 15 to 23, after his battle with Goliath in chapter 17, David will be catapulted into endless trouble with Saul. He will receive the brunt of Saul's envy, anger, and constant plotting to kill him. David, the, the man with the spirit, will be hunted, betrayed, trapped. He'll be hiding out in caves, fearing for his life, living as an exile right to the end of 1 Samuel. So when you read here in verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward, make sure you read that statement in the whole context because what it's saying is the Spirit comes and trouble begins. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit of God is tormenting you. Now it's interesting to me <laughs> Um, that the people around Saul see and interpret what's going on in Saul's life rightly, a harmful spirit from God. Verse 16, uh, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he can play and you'll feel better. So there was no Prozac back then, but they did believe in music therapy. So Saul said, okay, that sounds good to me. Go find me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men said, you know what? I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and I've seen this son, and he's, uh, no name here. He's, he's, he's skillful in playing. He's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. 
Now, I take it that some time has passed since verse 13. David went back to his sheep. He kept honing his slingshot skills. He battled, killed lions and bears, probably fought off uh, marauders who tried to steal Jesse's sheep. But somehow, some way, he's got a reputation. People knew these things mentioned here. David, son of Jesse, great guitar player, a man of great courage, very wise, articulate in the things he says, especially in his ability to write poetry. And most of all, Yahweh is with him, which we see now, people are recognizing that he has the spirit upon him, but not through battle, just by reputation. Verse 19, look at this, look at the irony here because Yahweh's choice now becomes Saul's choice Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who's with the sheep. And David came to Saul and entered into his service and Saul loved him greatly. So certainly Saul knows nothing about what Samuel has done. And he became his armor bearer, which is the most trusted, one of the most trusted staff positions for a king. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, I really want him to stay with me. Let David remain in my service, for he's found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David would take his guitar and play it. And Saul was refreshed and felt better, and the harmful spirit would depart for him for a while. So the newly appointed king willingly and humbly serves and ministers to the rejected king, which I think is another evidence of the kind of heart that David has and the fact that the spirit rests on him. This is a story about a leadership transition, the leadership transition from Saul, a man who followed after his own heart, to David, a man after God's own heart. It's a story about Yahweh, uh, faithful to his promises and acting in steadfast love, providing a new king for his people Uh, after Saul has been rejected. That's the big picture. But the big idea embedded in the choosing of a new king, the big idea we hear directly from God himself. Verse seven, remember, when Samuel sees Eliab, basically the clone of King Saul, he thinks, "This this is the guy, this must be Yahweh's chosen one. Yahweh says, nope. Verse seven, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. As I said earlier, most often we don't see as God sees. God sees people and events very differently from the way we see them. And as I said earlier, even Samuel doesn't see rightly. I mean, after all he's been through with Saul, he's still impressed with tall, dark, and handsome men, assuming that how a man looks qualifies him to be the king. But the things that impress us are not the things that impress God. Or put another way, when God looks for leaders, he doesn't value what we might value. And so God rebukes Samuel. Yahweh says, don't look at the way he looks. Don't look at how big and tall he is. I I don't see as you see. People look at outward appearances. I look at the heart. 
Now, this is a word that we desperately need to hear and understand because more than any other culture in the history of the world, we are taken with outward appearance. We're obsessed with externals, seduced by images, right? I mean, the media, movies, marketing, social media, Facebook, Instagram, selfies, it's all about image. It's about what we look like. It's physical appearance. It's all about presenting ourselves with the best photographic editing tools possible. And sadly, what happens is because we're so bombarded with images and outward appearances, we end up comparing ourselves to the outward appearances of other people, and that can be depressing. Physical stature, physical beauty, physical ability, brains, intellect, talents, gifts are not necessarily bad things, but none of those things really define your identity. They don't define who you are. The images we post are not really who we are. They're just physical qualities. They're surface qualities, and they're, they're not who you are. You know why? Because it, it, they're temporary. Things can happen. Life can happen, and anything external can change or be lost in an instant. God says who you really are is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of character character qualities, not physical qualities matter to God. That's what he's looking for. Martin Luther King got it right. You remember he said, I'm looking forward to the day when, when I'm judged based on my character and not the color of my skin. You see, in this story, what's going to make a kingdom go well is not if the king is a great warrior, those, that certainly would be a plus, but the most important thing is what's in the king's heart. It's whether the king is kind and just and loving and humble and wise and most of all, loyal and faithful to God. That's what's gonna make a kingdom go well and that's what makes a life go well. The most important thing is what's in your heart. It's whether you're kind and just and loving and humble and wise. What matters is what's in your heart. But what, really does, what does that really mean? Well, back in chapter 13, verse 14, God tells Saul that because of his disobedience, his kingdom will not last, his kingdom will not continue, and he says there, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over this people. A man after God's own heart. That's exactly how the apostle Paul describes David at Acts chapter 13, verse 22. David was a man after God's own heart. The heart God is looking for is a heart that's after the heart of God. It's a heart that seeks to know God, a heart that wants what God wants, a heart that desires to do what God says do, a heart that avoids what God says will bring harm to yourself and others and and, and especially this, a heart, the heart that God is looking for is the heart that sees as God sees. We'll see this in the next chapter, but when David stands before Goliath, David will see things very differently from Saul and his army. David was a man after God's own heart because he had learned to see as God sees. 
I like how Chuck Swindoll talks about this. He says, to be a man or woman after God's heart means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What's important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says, go to the right, you go to the right. When he says, stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says, this is wrong, I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. He says, that's bottom line, biblical Christianity. Having a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. A parallel verse is found in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, where we read, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What's God looking for? He's looking for men and women whose hearts are completely his, completely. That means there are no locked closets. Nothing's been swept under the rug. That means when you do wrong, you admit it and you immediately come to terms with it. You're grieved over it. You confess your sin, you repent of your sin and you care about the motivations behind your actions and evidently, evidently David had a heart like that. Now, please do not misunderstand. Having a heart for God doesn't mean that you have a sinless heart. As we'll see, David commits awful sins, adultery, murder. He was far from sinless. But after his sin with Bathsheba, David, he repents and he writes one of the most beautiful psalms of confession and repentance you'll ever read. In Psalm 51, let me just read a portion of it. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And oh God, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit. Don't cast me from your your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Why do you suppose he prayed that? because that's what God had done with Saul. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. You hear his heart there. Not a sinless heart. But David gives us a great picture, or Psalm 51 gives us a great picture of David's heart. David sees his sin as God sees his sin. David sees God as God really is. Loving, compassionate, just, righteous, gracious, forgiving. Forgiving. Oh yeah, absolutely. David had the heart of a man after God's own heart. The heart of an imperfect man who continued to passionately pursue the heart of God even when, or especially when, he messed up. you have that kind of heart? Maybe the better question is, how do you cultivate a heart like that? 
And so here's my big idea from the big idea of the text. As we learn to see as God sees, our hearts will become more and more like his. As we learn to see as God sees, our hearts will become more and more like his. You know, if I could change one thing about how I see things, this would be the thing that I would change. I want to more consistently see the people and the events that God brings into my life the way God sees them. I want to more consistently see the people and the events that God brings into my life the way he sees them. Now think about it this way. Let's come in the back door. Think about a person who's not afraid of failure. Think about a person who seldom gets bothered by criticism. Think about a person who has no need to prove himself or herself. Think about a person who isn't devastated by bad news. Of course, they feel the shock, the sadness, the anger, the loneliness, the fear that comes with bad news, but they're not completely undone by it. Is it even possible to live that way? It is, but only if you can see failure and criticism and interruptions and giant difficulties the way that God sees them. If you can see the way God sees, your heart will not be overcome by those things. But if you don't see as God sees, our hearts tend to run off the rails, right? Fear, worry, anxiety, pride, arrogance, conceit, self-pity, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-serving agendas. That's why this big idea is so important. As we learn to see as God sees, our hearts will become more and more like his. And just so you know, learning to see as God sees comes from reading and studying and meditating on God's word. And no, uh, at nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is about the word of God and a person who gives themselves to meditating on the word of God. Psalm 119, longest psalm, it's all about the word of God. And you see in that passage, in Psalm 119, you see David's heart to know God through his word. He wants to follow God's instruction. He's grateful for it. And if you're gonna learn to see as God sees, you have to see him in scripture. You have to see who God is, the beauty of who God is. You have to see what God does and why God does what he does in this world. You have to see what God says about how life is to be lived under his kingship. And you have to see how all of scripture points us forward to King Jesus. And one of the best books of the Bible to do that is the book of Psalms. As we learn to see as God sees, our hearts will be shaped to become more and more like his heart. The Jesus on Display podcast is produced right here at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Follow and share this podcast with anyone who might be interested or curious about our church community or how storytelling unites us and helps us feel more connected. To actively keep up with what's going on at our church community, head to our website at fellowshipgreenville.org 
follow us on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you for your week, and we'll see you next time.